Welcome to another episode of the Think Wildlife Podcast. A common theme across season two of this podcast has been the role of community involvement in conservation. This is not very surprising, particularly in India, where over 200 million people live around India's protected areas, relying directly on forests and the natural ecosystem for sustenance in the form of bushmeat, firewood, medicines, and cattle grazing. But you can help out. Think Wildlife Foundation has partnered with countless organizations around India to help provide sustainable alternative livelihoods to these communities. You can directly help these communities out by buying products produced by these communities from the links below. And don't worry, 90% of the revenue is sent directly to these communities. Today I will be speaking to Sarah Conley from the International Elephant Foundation to talk about the great work they're supporting to conserve elephants across both Asia and Africa. So here we begin. So welcome Sarah, it's a pleasure to have you here on the behalf of the International Elephant Foundation. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. What led to the creation of the International Elephant Foundation and what is the organization's long-term vision? The International Elephant Foundation is unique in the nonprofit world because we are people who work with elephants uh who come from that elephant background. In 1998, uh Michael Foraker, who's the current executive director of the Fort Worth Zoo, got together with a group of elephant experts, veterinarians, trainers, researchers, and conservationists, and they discussed what they saw were the problems with elephant conservation. And the big problem they identified was that funds weren't getting to the field to fund small impactful projects. They thought there was too much overhead, too much reliance on flashy campaigns, and not enough boots on the ground, local and regional approaches to promote sustainable positive change. So out of that conversation, the International Elephant Foundation was born. IEF has the long-term vision of creating a sustainable future where elephants thrive. by linking people and elephants for their mutual long-term benefit. And so we were created to promote elephant conservation in the long term, but, but to make sure that our funds are the most effectively managed we can possibly do. So we don't have a bloated overhead, we don't have flashy campaigns, we just do good work. Can you elaborate a bit on the grants programs? What type of projects do you support and how can one apply? Sure, absolutely. The IEF provides financial support to conservation projects through our annual conservation grant program. This year, for example, we are supporting 28 projects in 17 countries, focusing on everything from anti-poaching patrols to habitat protection to supporting peaceful coexistence between communities and elephants to developing a vaccine for elephant diseases. We have some long-term projects, some multi-year projects, but the majority of our grants are year-long smaller projects that are usually community driven with a grassroots approach. Um and people can apply for them. First of all, everyone is welcome to apply. We encourage smaller organizations and community-led projects because we know that community-led projects end up being more successful in the long run because that means the people in the area where there is a problem will be more invested in the solution. With this in mind, IEF funds everything from habitat protection, security, capacity building, education, new technologies. We do have target priorities every year, but we recognize that a good approach 
is good regardless of what our identified target priorities are. And we're happy to fund a good project regardless. In the last few years, which projects have been the most interesting and successful so far? Good question. We have a bunch of projects that I think are really successful, um, but let me highlight two. So the first one that I'm pretty passionate about is um, in Sumatra, which is an island of Indonesia. And we call them conservation response units and elephant response units. They're in Aceh province in the northern part of the island and Wakambas National Park in the southern part of the island. Unlike many other Asian elephant range countries, the Indonesian island of Sumatra does not have a long history of elephant management, like you would think of, say, in India or Thailand. But they do have a history of dangerous human-elephant conflict, which only intensifies as their economy is growing. The initial government response was to capture these problem elephants that would raid, raid farmers, raid villages, and things like that and the government would house them. But this was unsustainable and not ideal for the humans, the elephants, habitat health, any of, any of the above. So IEF worked with local groups and the forest departments to develop these conservation response units where these sort of quote unquote problem elephants were rehabbed and helped forest rangers and mahouts patrol conflict hotspots and protected habitat. These patrol elephants help herd the wild elephants away from the human settlements, uh, which is much more effective than say, shooting at them or screaming at them, which you know is what people's first instinct is. Uh, you, can, you can access inaccessible areas, places that cars and motorbikes can't go. Uh, they, these elephants get a high level of care and plenty of exercise, mental stimulation, and seasonality of food, which is all really good for them. So we've taken uh, what was a not ideal situation for these captured elephants and turned them into conservation prop partners. Uh, and the model has been so effective that it has spread, it's created a number of units throughout the island. Um, and it's also spread to Myanmar where people might know that a number, a handful of years ago, they banned uh, elephant, or they banned logging in general. And so all the logging elephants that were used were out of work. And so now they're being used to patrol and protect habitat there too. So this is a really cool project that has really enhanced communities and enhanced safety and enhanced the lives of elephants, which is great. Um, and then quickly, the other project that I really love is all of IEF's funding and support research for elephant endotheliotropic herpes virus, EEHV. Uh, EEHV is an insidious disease. It affects every elephant. Um, every elephant can have it. It normal, normally targets baby and juvenile elephants, both in Africa and Asia and human care and in the wild. Right now there is no cure and no vaccine. And once the onset of clinical symptoms appear, most elephants die within 72 hours, which is horrific and heartbreaking. And so we have funded uh, the foundational research into the genome of EHV that Dr. Gary Hayward at John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins does. And he's sequencing the genome of all the different strains and analyzing it. 
and his work serves as the foundation for nearly all other EHV research, which then brings us to the work that we're supporting with Dr. Paul Ling at Baylor College of Medicine, who is now in the final stages of developing a vaccine to provide immunity to EHV. His lab is making huge strides that others are building upon. And I think due to Dr. Hayward and Dr. Ling's work, we are going to see hopefully the end of EHV within 10 or 15 years, which is mind blowing and such an amazing thing. Not many people know that there are actually three species of elephants in the world. Everyone just assumes that there's an African and Asian elephants, but there's actually two species of African elephants. So could you just elaborate on why these two species were separated and what are the main threats to the species? So the identification of the quote unquote third species of elephant has been it's new, but it's one of these things that researchers and scientists have suspected for quite a long time. African elephants are actually two dis distinct species, now recognized as the African savanna or bush elephant and the African forest elephant. The ability to look at species-specific DNA has proved that they are separate species. And so they were recently recognized as such, but the differences in appearance, habitat pref preference, foraging, um, food, even how many elephants are in a herd has made researchers and conservationists believe that they were separate species for a long time. Essentially, scientists like Dr. Alfred Roca worked for years to prove this, and then it was officially recognized by the IUCN Red List, which is why now they're considered two separate species. And this new classification allows for more species-specific targeted conservation actions, targeted habitat protection, things like that. My next question is that what are the main threats to each of the three individual species, the African savanna, African bush, and Asiatic elephants? Here's the thing about threats to elephants. They all have very similar threats. It's just a variation in degree. So let's look at... Um, forest elephants, for example. Forest elephants, there are approximately 40 to 50,000 forest elephants remaining. And they are a huge target for poachers. They have, people consider their ivory to be denser than savanna elephant ivory or Asian elephant ivory. And so they're more desirable for carvers, making them targets for poachers. Um, but see, all elephants are targets for poachers. And then when you look at all of them as a whole, we have challenges for poaching and security, habitat loss, and human-elephant conflict. Forest elephants are targets for poachers, like we said, but there's also um, local government ability to protect their habitat. With savanna elephants, they face poaching as well, but they are really facing human elephant conflict due to more people farming and mining for precious metals and rare earth minerals in their habitat. So they're losing habitat and they're, that is pushing them into other areas, which is causing conflict. This makes HEC, human elephant conflict, one of the biggest challenges to savanna elephants. For Asian elephants, Asia, it really depends on the region, but categorically, the Asian elephant habitat is being destroyed at an alarming rate. Habitats are fragmenting, which damages genetic diversity and elephants' ability, ability to forage. And then again, 
this pushes them into human generated or human dominated uh, areas and causes conflict. But you also have to remember their habitats being destroyed for things like oil palm plantations and palm oil is used in everything from shampoo to candy to ice cream. Um, so it's really a threat to elephants in general. Um, but Asian elephants specifically are dealing with severe habitat loss and human elephant conflict. But again, every one of these species is dealing with the same sort of three broad categories. It's just about severity. So let's go on to the work supported by IEF. IEF is also working with the African Savannah Elephant in Namibia. So what makes these countries' elephants so unique and how have these elephants adapted to the harsh desert climate? Namibia's desert elephants are really cool. Uh, desert elephants are genetically the same as African Savannah elephants, but they have adapted to the desert environment in Namibia. Their habitat is mostly sandy desert, rocky mountains, gravel plains, and they have adapted to this hot, arid climate by traveling mainly at night. They also tend to have wider feet uh, and longer legs than say other savanna elephants. And they can go days without drinking water because they eat the kind of moisture rich vegetation at the bottom of riverbeds when they do find water. So it's actually these, these elephants are the same as the savanna elephant, except their behavior is different, but they've, they've done genetic studies and they are, they're genetically the same, which is very interesting. Could you just elaborate a bit on the project working with these desert elephants? Absolutely. So we have incredible partners uh, in Namibia and uh, no elephant is immune to threat of poaching, but desert elephants are really facing challenges in human elephant conflict and believe it or not, habitat loss. Habitat loss on animals that are already living in a challenging landscape is very difficult, making them work even harder for food and water. And if you, if you have communities growing and developing, sometimes cutting off migratory routes and resulting in conflict. The competition for already scarce resources coupled with potential animosity from these communities who have experienced damage and death from elephants can make survival a challenge. So IEF is supporting work by Elephant Human Relations Aid in Namibia. These are excellent partners. They work with local farmers and livestock herders to teach them how to avoid conflict with elephants, best practices for staying safe, and the important roles that elephants play in the ecosystem so that we can have them invested in conservation as opposed to having that adversarial relationship. They also build water holes outside of towns so that elephants won't come in looking for resources. They have a safe place to drink. Um, and therefore they won't be venturing into the human landscapes. Um, but they, we also have been supporting uh, collaring of specific elephants in that region so that we can track not only for an early warning system for communities, but also see how they utilize this rare and difficult landscape um, and hopefully learn more about them and how, how we can do things to facilitate their health and their thriving mentioned that elephants are very important for the ecosystem. So how exactly are they important? Elephants are often called ecosystem engineers. And this is because they 
their activities within an ecosystem or within a habitat do so much to shape and create healthy environments for all the creatures that share that habitat. There are multiple species of plants that whose seeds must go through the digestive tract of an elephant in order to germinate. Elephants do things like uh, pull down branches and, and push down trees that allows more sun to hit below in the ground cover and therefore allows uh, the forest to rejuvenate or the savanna to reju rejuvenate and things to grow. Elephants will dig uh, for salt licks and minerals that other animals will use. There's even been studies that show things like tiny, nearly microscopic size frogs will use the tiny puddles created by elephant footprints to live in. So you have, you have all these critters that live off of the byproducts or ability of elephants to change the habitat. So that's very important. Elephants are also uh, considered what, what, it, what we call an umbrella species, which means that if you protect elephants, you're protecting everything below, right? So if you are, if you are helping elephants, you end up helping not only all the plants that are in that environment, but you're helping the dung beetle that lives off elephant dung, the frogs that use the footprints, the uh, rhino that in both Asia and Africa share that habitat because elephants are creating habitat health that are allowing that rhino to thrive. Uh, you're helping the pangolin, which is one of the most trafficked species on the planet. Uh, so for example, our CRUs and ERUs in Sumatra patrol habitat that elephants share with pangolin. So when they're catching poachers, oftentimes they're catching people who are trying to catch and sell pangolin scales, not necessarily people who are targeting elephants. So by protecting elephants, by having elephant patrols, you are protecting every species that could be harmed in that area. So it, without elephants, you are you would see a complete redefinition of what that habitat looks like. And there would be a cascade of negative effects for other species. So moving on to some of the work you guys are supporting in Asia, IEF is working a lot with community-based conservation. Why is it so important to involve local communities in elephant conservation? And can you just talk about some of the projects you are supporting? IEF really believes in community-based projects. And we have many throughout Asia. Uh, at the end of the day, it will be people who share their backyards with elephants who will ultimately determine if elephants survive for the next generation. This means we have to work with people and build a community consensus for conservation. You can't just focus on wildlife and ignore the human element. So this means that we tailor approaches to the region. So in certain areas of India, where they have a culture of street plays, we have supported community street plays to, do, to teach do's and don'ts when seeing elephants to keep people safe. In Sumatra, we've talked about the elephant response units who's, who patrol and habitat, protect habitat, but they also work with local farmers to hold night watches and protect their crops and livelihoods. This builds this sense of community ownership for what they're doing. So you have these farmers who are almost de facto members of these groups that feel like these are their 
patrols and they feel like their needs are addressed, which is very important. Um, in Nepal, we support community-based forest patrols, rapid response teams, and the use of camera traps in order to reduce uh, conflicts with wildlife and, a again, create a community sense of ownership for the forest and safely protect them and the forest, addressing problem animals instead of killing them. So doing things like if there is a elephant or in Nepal, sometimes a tiger that is kind of too close to a village or raiding a village, we will do everything we can to translocate that animal so it's away from human settlements instead of what the communities might historically do, which is retaliate against the animal. Continuing with human elephant conflict, in India, IEF is supporting projects focusing on early warning systems to mitigate human elephant conflict. What are these systems and how do these, do these systems work? That's a good question. Uh, elephants are very smart and they learn and adapt and part of conservation is keeping one step ahead of them. Early warning systems can be set up in a few different ways, but generally happen via cell phones and phone trees in order to keep communities alerted to potential elephant herds nearby or individual elephants nearby. Sometimes these warning systems are set off by individual sightings. Sometimes they're set off by things like GPS collars that track herd movements. Um, and when they go within a certain range, will trigger these warnings. But there are new technologies that are being developed. We are supporting one right now that's investigating a system using what they're calling a smart fence design. It has laser transmitters and receivers that will send messages to a signboard that motorists can read, alerting them that elephants are in the region. And theoretically, to if you think about it, right? In well, I'm, I'm not sure about the UK where you are, but in the United States, we have areas where. There are signs that say, you know, watch for crossing deer. And people are always worried about hitting a deer as they're driving through certain parts of the country. Well, in India, trains and motorists can hit elephants. It's a weird thing that we don't think about in the Western world, but absolutely is a threat to both humans and animals. So having this signboard that will alert them to elephants in the region lets them know okay, I need to slow down, I need to keep watch, things like that. So right now that project's in the testing phase. We have no real way of knowing how effective it will be until they finish their tests. Um, so the jury's out. But again, it's about keeping ahead of the intelligence of the elephants and figuring things out. In terms of human-elephant conflict, another popular solution is fencing. What makes fencing such a popular solution for mitigating human-elephant conflict? And does this have any impact uh, in regards with changing the elephant's migration routes or behaviors? So I'm not sure if anyone has studied change the effect of fencing on changing migration routes, but they have studied changing behavior. So the reason people approach uh, human-elephant conflict with fencing is because it seems a lot easier to protect, say, a small plot of land or a small house and farm than it is to, say, try to force elephants to stay in one region because elephants don't know where the national park boundaries are. That's that's not something that they're aware of. They're just going to go wherever their stomach tells them to go and wherever they 
are going historically to find food and water. And if some farm is now in that place, it creates a problem. So things like beehive fencing, which definitely work in certain areas, um, but have varied success in other areas, uh, or lightly electric fence. Uh, IEF supports this thing called polywire fencing in Zambia, which is a very thin, light, uh, conductive metal electric fence. And essentially it will provide a shock to the elephants without hurting them to deter them from raiding crops, things like that. And generally when the elephants test it and they get that sort of negative um, experience, whether it's bees going all over their trunk and bothering them, or if it's, you know, electric fencing, or even we've seen people test things like uh, reflective light fencing, things like that. Anything like that, when they test it, they tend to go around it because they're, they're not looking for conflict. They just want to get to wherever they want to go. So if they can go around it, then they're going to go around it and the other animals in their herd will do that as well. Um, but again, they're smart. Eventually they'll figure it out and figure that maybe I can just break this string and no more fence, things like that. Um, but it's a very interesting approach because it does change elephant behavior to a certain extent, but we don't know how long. This is why they keep developing new technologies, why we keep supporting developing new technologies. And we don't know, it doesn't, I can't really say for sure if it impacts migration rounds, but it doesn't seem to. And I don't think, I haven't seen any studies where it addresses that issue. You you mentioned that BI fencing has very varied success. Why is this the case? Um, that's a good question. So beehive fencing has been extremely successful in some areas. In other areas, you have factors like bees need things like water. So if there's not a water source near the beehive fence, the bees aren't going to populate the hives that are along the fence. So we've seen people build beehive fences and they can't sustain a colony of bees. So then it's not an effective, effective fence. And there has been, and that's all largely in Africa. When you talk about beehive fencing in Asia, the Asian bees are completely different than the African bees. And there's some, some argument about whether Asian elephants are as afraid or averse to Asian bees as African elephants are to African bees. So beehive fencing has not been very prevalent or successful in Asia. Although I don't know how far it has been tested. So it, again, every conflict mitigation technique has a positive and a negative, right? So setting up beehive fences creates a certain amount of work for the farmer. And so they need to be ma maintained. The bees are a, another creature that needs to have food and water and needs to be maintained. So you can't, it's not the silver bullet against human elephant conflict, unfortunately. 
But when done correctly and in the right region where the resources are there for the bees to thrive, it can be very successful. So with Africa and much of South Asia growing very rapidly in terms of the econ economies, what do you think are some long-term solutions to mitigating human-elephant conflict? Well, so first let's talk about Asia. Asia has huge instances of human-elephant conflict, and they also don't have very large patches of habitat for these animals to live in. And with the Asian elephant, there's 40 to 50,000 elephant, Asian elephants left. And guess what? About a third of them live in some form of managed care. They live in some form of human interaction. So, and it doesn't seem like economic expansion in Asia is going to slow down. And, you know, it shouldn't. It's not our role as a Western society to tell developing countries, no, you're not allowed to grow and develop. That's that's part of the problem. So we need to find solutions to for countries and people to grow and develop and also protect their natural heritage. So in Asia, it's going to be promoting safe, managed care where people can live alongside wildlife habitats and not have damage, not have danger. Uh, and again, it's a regional approach. So things like the patrol units in Sumatra and, and Myanmar work in those regions. They might not work in Vietnam, right? Vietnam has a very, very small population of elephants that may go regionally extinct within the next 10 or 15 years. They're, they're going to have completely different challenges than what they have in India or Nepal uh, or Thailand. So there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. So you need to do things. I always tell people, number one, you need to protect habitat. Because if there is no habitat for them to live, then there's we've already lost the game. After you've protect, protected the habitat, you need to work within the communities so that they feel the need to protect that habitat and so that they feel invested in whatever conservation actions we're doing or they're doing. And ideally, it should be led by them. And then after that, you're talking about any regional distinction, anything you need to do for that specific region. And it's that's really the same approach that we would take in Africa as well. And again, it's a little, you can generalize a little bit more with Africa, but it's, it's still protecting habitat, getting community involvement, and then going from there. I can't say that there is sort of one long-term solution, unfortunately. So moving on to Africa specifically. So one of the prominent projects which IEF is supporting is the Big Tusker project. So could you elaborate on this, please? Absolutely. I love this project. So I like to say that this project works hand in trunk with our sponsor and elephant program. Uh, the Big Tusker project with Savo Trust provides aerial surveillance uh, to some of the world's last big tuskers. These are elephants with, with 
ivory that weighs over 100 pounds per side. If you think about it, these are the elephants from picture books when you were six years old. And this project provides eyes in the skies to help track and monitor these big tuskers, emerging tuskers, and iconic females so they can reproduce and pass on their genetics. So it's an aerial surveillance team that works closely with the Kenya Wildlife Service and teams on the ground to report threats, uh, respond to poaching, recover ivory from bodies of dead elephants, whether they've died of poaching or from natural causes. And they respond to animal injuries too, provide veterinary care. So last year they patrolled over 600 hours in a light aircraft covering over 83,000 kilometers of habitat, which is very cool. And individual big tuskers are identified and named so they keep track of everyone and kind of what their general habitat and area, preferred area is. And we developed the Sponsor an Elephant program around that. So donors who want to adopt or sponsor one of these big tuskers can, and you can choose a one of these iconic elephants and support their aerial protection, which is very cool. It's become quite evident that technology is is very critical to conserving elephants, both in Africa and Asia. Could you just talk about some emerging technologies which are revolutionizing elephant conservation? Absolutely. So we have no idea what technology will bring. We are absolutely hopeful that there will be new innovations, but there are all kinds of things that are being tested out there. Uh, effectiveness of sound machines that project, say, like the sound of bees to deter elephants from areas. So where those beehive fences aren't working, what if we just projected the sound of bees and that maybe would turn the elephants away? But again, elephants test things and learn quickly, so we don't know. Uh, there are different communication systems that rely on satellite connectivity and equipment that must be able to withstand harsh conditions and being left out in these harsh habitats. Um, so some of those are really promising when you see them work, but they have the durability hasn't been tested yet. Um, but there's so much to be done and so many clever inventors and programmers out there that it's possible that someone will develop software that can revolutionize some aspect of conservation. Um, there's all kinds of really cool things. One of the uh, technologies that IEF has really put a lot of effort in is in Uganda. Uh, there are fad technologies, of course, but that doesn't mean that they're gonna be the silver bullet to the problem. Um, so there's this software called Earth Ranger that is integrated into ranger stations that we built in Murchison Falls and Queen Elizabeth National Park in Uganda. It helps keep rangers in communication with each other and the operations base. So in real time, they can make their patrols more effective and help keep the rangers safe they can also accurately track uh, where they've been, data analysis, identifying patterns of threats and enhancing ranger capacity. So that I feel has made huge strides in effectiveness um, and letting these rangers be safe and effective um, and in communication with each other. So hopefully we will have more developments like that, but you never know where it's gonna come from. This is, this is a software but there may be some piece of hardware that people develop. It's it's hard to know. 
you spoke about some of the rangers working in Uganda let's move on to patrolling national parks and what are some of the biggest challenges faced by patrol teams being a wildlife ranger is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world they protect wild things and wild places from people who are heavily armed and often supported by international crime syndicates patrols are usually underfunded understaffed and overworked and they still get up every day and put their lives on the line these men and women are heroes and we do whatever we can to support them they have huge risks armed conflict with poachers getting caught in snares and traps that are set for other animals uh getting injured or killed by wildlife and even accidents like falling out of a building as it as a <laughs> falling out of a vehicle as it traverses rough terrain they face authentic perilous challenges every day but they're some of the most dedicated people i've ever met and that's why we do everything we can to support them whether it's providing new boots building ranger stations creating more communication systems uh or even helping the communities from which the rangers come a project if is supporting is the k9 unit program could you just talk about this project and why are dogs being increasingly used for conservation yeah absolutely conservation dogs are an incredible tool in the conservation toolbox dogs have abilities that humans lack they have a keen sense of smell being their primary skill that is used for this kind of thing just like the TSA and FDA and police departments use dogs to smell out contraband and search for suspects so can conservation dogs they can be taught to smell ivory and rhino horn things that are being smuggled in vehicles they track poachers they find endangered wildlife like the scent of tortoise eggs or pangolins that are being smuggled all of this makes rangers more effective so the canine units that we're supporting in zambia with conservation lower zambezi do just that and we're actually supporting training local village dogs to do this kind of work and so far it's promising which is great um the dogs are also in in a strange way the dogs are intimidating to prevent potential wildlife criminals so they can serve as a deterrent um and yeah dogs are man's best friend but they can also be friends to elephants in this way which is one of the reasons why we support this because it's like i said another important tool in the toolbox and it may not work everywhere but it definitely works very effectively in some places let's talk about how covid-19 has impacted the iefs works and elephant conservation as a whole covid-19 created an interesting situation as far as conservation goes number 1 in places throughout range countries whether you're africa or asia when people travel to go see wildlife those park fees that you're paying the uh support you give to the communities when you're going to places to go on safari that all feeds back into the economy and the park fees that you that you pay on safari often go directly back to patrolling to habitat protection to conservation activities so as soon as the world locked down from covid-19 from the pandemic all of that goes away and then all of the communities who provided 
hotel and food and supplies and safari guides for these activities, these people are now unemployed. And when you live in that extreme rural environment, a lot of people started turning to illegal wildlife harvesting, things that would damage the habitat. So photo safaris, ways that we have supported conservation as consumers for years, all of a sudden went away. So now that protective element has gone away. And now we're putting even more stress on the habitat because the locals are utilizing, you know, maybe they're cutting down more, they're clearing more habitat to burn in their stoves. They are harvesting animals to eat, right? They're trying to make ends meet by living off the land, which is damaging the habitat. So not only do you not have the protection of the ha- of the of all of these behaviors that travel in- encourages or travel enables, but now you have extra stress. So that's one thing. Another thing, you have an incredible amount of fear that people have with this wildlife, right? Especially in the early days of COVID, no one knew whether, you know, they told us it came from a bat, they told us it came from a pangolin. So all of a sudden people are afraid of wildlife in a way that they weren't before. That's affected it. And then the the economic pressure that just even being shut down for a few months in some states here in the United States or for a couple of years in some states here in the United States, that creates a huge amount of economic disparity and pressure, which drives any donation for conservation activity down. Um, so you have a, we created with this pandemic, a huge need for conservation and there were almost no resources to meet it. IEF was unique in that the way we do our budgeting, we make sure that we don't commit to any project where we don't already have funds. So we didn't have to pull any funding from any projects. Everything that we supported kept going. Uh, But again, that created challenges too, because we support a lot of community projects. And when you're, everyone's supposed to stay at home, how do you have community meetings? How do you reach out? to people and teach them about different aspects of conservation if you can't all meet together. So we, our project leaders pivoted. They did things like um, have art contests, do their um, educational programs over the radio, uh, reaching potentially even more people than their project would have reached otherwise. they would go door to door and have individual family uh, education sessions as opposed to a giant community education session. So it's, we are really proud of the way that all of our projects pivoted, but it's also, it provided challenges because again, being able to meet is one of the touchstones of being able to reach a large amount of people. Uh, but again, we did, the best we could and things are up and running now in a more sort of normal way, which is great. Um, And you just have to deal with whatever regional challenges you have. Different countries had different 
rules for different lengths of time and you just have to work within it, but it created a huge challenge for conservation. And our focus was making sure that none of the areas where we had worked on backslid. We wanted to maintain all of the conservation gains that we were able to build throughout all these years. And I think we were able to do that. That is definitely quite positive. So how can individuals contribute to elephant conservation and IEF in particular? So after talking about the COVID-19 and the economic downturn that caused um, a difficulty for people to do their conservation funding, of course, conservation activities are always underfunded. So if you want to help IEF, you can always sponsor an elephant on our website, or you can just donate. You can share conservation messaging with your friends and family on social media. And a lot of social media um, platforms like Instagram and Facebook have ways that you can hold fundraisers for charities that you like. So you can hold a birthday fundraiser for IEF on Facebook. You can put a donate button for IEF in your Instagram stories. But you don't have to just support financially. You can share our memes. You can tell your friends and family about elephant conservation and why we need such a connection with wildlife in order to protect it. You can also be good stewards of your environment. Only buy products made with certified sustainable palm oil so that no wildlife habitat is destroyed to make that shampoo or chocolate or ice cream or makeup. And Cheyenne Mountain Zoo has a really great app that helps people do that. Um, so it goes without saying not to purchase ivory or other products made from elephant parts. But there are a lot of ways to help elephants and a lot of ways to help IEF. My final question for you is, what has been your greatest learning from your conservation career? Animals and people teach us a lot. And I think going into working with elephants and working with conservation, I learned pretty, pretty quickly that there is no easy solution to conservation. If we wanna protect elephants and really all species for future generations, we can't focus just on the animals. People will not protect elephants if they have no food on their tables. They will not protect habitat if they have no jobs. In order to help wildlife, we have to help people too. Conservation activities need to be an overall positive for communities. They can't be punitive. It is about creating incentives for people to take conservation action and making sure their interests and the interests of wildlife align. This is why community partnerships are important. They need to feel the connection and the pride in their wildlife, in what their natural heritage is. We can't divorce humans from elephants. With nearly one third of all Asian elephants living in some form of managed care, human elephant conflict being a huge threat for all elephant species, we need cooperation with humans for the species to survive, not to separate them from that. So I think the closer people feel towards elephants, the more they will be inspired to act to save them. And I think that is my takeaway from what I've learned from 10 plus years in conservation. Uh, thank you for that. So it was a pleasure speaking speaking to you today. And I hope IEF can continue its great work in supporting elephants around the world. Thank you so much for speaking with me. And 
asking such insightful questions. I really appreciate sharing our mission and our work with everyone.